Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed one, some, or all of the more than 120 interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. My guest on today's AA Recovery Interviews is Diego R., who grew up in a fear-ridden household with an alcoholic father, whose rage left an indelible mark on the only child. Though his father left when he was five, Diego had learned how to use rage and rebellion to compensate for his fear and lack of self-confidence. By the time he started drinking, the alcohol combusted with his attitude and egoism to stoke a fast and reckless lifestyle. Working as a mechanical engineer, Diego's job had two, three, and four-week rotations that allowed him to drink and chase women unimpeded while he was off the job. Working at facilities around the world, he was a functional alcoholic, fulfilling many critical roles. But his around-the-clock work commitment meant he couldn't drink for up to 28 days at a time. As the disease progressed, he spent much of his time on the job devising elaborate plans for his inevitable benders once off-duty. Drinking soon occupied all his hours off the job and started to bleed into Diego's ability to perform his work while on the job. Ironically, one of Diego's roles involved monitoring other employees for alcohol and drug use. But working in an environment where drinking and alcoholism were rife continued to make life more miserable for him. Hitting bottom in 2018, Diego committed to AA's program of recovery, and he has been a sober, active, and engaged member of the program since. Staying sober for five-plus years has generated many gifts for Diego and countless opportunities to be of service to other sober alcoholics. I think you will find his testimony to be of great value, especially those of you in the early years of your AA program. And though it may take a few seconds to acclimate yourself to Diego's Venezuelan accent, your investment of one hour to listen to Diego's awesome story will be time well spent. So please enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews con mi amigo y AA hermano, Diego R. Diego, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Diego. That's the right answer to that one. I'm so glad that you were able to make the time today to join me on AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I appreciate um, your willingness to have me. Oh, yeah. I, I, I knew that I wanted to do that for a while now, and... You and I were in a meeting together today, and you just celebrated uh, five years of sobriety. That's right. What was your sobriety day? April 12, 2018. Yeah, so you picked up your five-year chip. I got yes. the opportunity to see you get that. What did that mean to you to get that five-year chip? Well, it is um, a powerful reminder and a blessing that brings me back to, to my relapse before that time. Mm-hmm. It, it brings me back to... To where all started. But I first went to an AA meeting back in Colombia, South America. After trying to go after all my attempts to make my life better, mm-hmm. what they taught me I was supposed to do or be in order to be happy, mm-hmm. uh, but nothing worked. Mm-hmm. None. It was not that big job, not that good-looking chick, not that amazing dream location. What was happening was that I was feeling depressed, 
and are defeated mm. in repeated occasions. Mm -hmm. So after after finding that option, I unfortunately stopped going to meetings, and I ended up feeling the same way because I just just slacked it or, or just neglected about it. The bottom line was that I ended up feeling the same way here in Houston where God wanted me to be, but I was tr kind of avoiding because it was not fun enough for a single person like me. Of yeah. course, my ego was popping up. But that relapse was, was a must for me in my sobriety because otherwise I'll probably be still <clears throat> trying to make my way instead of God's way. So those five years putting together that relapse, the pandemic, and the lapse which was longer than than usual and expected without mm -hmm. having that little higher power I was maintaining called my job or my professional achievements was something that much needed and solid foundation yeah. to remember how powerless I am. That's the good thing about birthdays, isn't it? That you have the opportunity to kind of revisit where you've been over the time, whether it's involved relapsing or staying sober. It's such a great opportunity to kind of gauge where your life is at any given point. Yes. So so you grew up in Colombia. Venezuela. My family's from Colombia, but I'm born and raised in Venezuela. In Venezuela. So I grew up kind of between, but yeah, home was Venezuela. And I was very well aware of Colombian culture too, because I kind of gravitated in between. What was your childhood like in Venezuela? Well, um, it was a happy childhood. An alcoholic dad trying his best to raise a happy kid with all his flaws and, you know, attempts to to be a better dad until I was five. Mm -hmm. Back then we thought he he was a, a consistent and never a drunk drinker. Uh -huh. uh, but in fact, his behavior was dramatically affected by, by that first drink. Mm -hmm. um, after five, he leave home, so we just moved to another place, which has a lot of greenery and a bunch of kids. So I had a pretty, pretty happy um, childhood, but of course, it was borderline, economically speaking. Were you raised by your mom? By my mom. So of course, for her, raising a, a kid on herself in a country that was not hers. She's from Colombia. She's from Colombia. He was from Venezuela. My parents, after they, they got together, they went to Venezuela together from Colombia. So they were both Colombian by exactly. birth. Exactly. So you were born in Venezuela? I was born in Venezuela, Valencia, and then brought to Maracaibo, which is Western Venezuela. So uh, do you have siblings, brothers and Not sisters? Not from mom and dad, but I have half-sisters and a half-younger uh -huh. brother. When, when you were five years old, your dad left. Was it a divorce that had him leave, or did he just split? No, they just played, and dad tried to submit a divorce from the distance, but that didn't happen because it was a young kid, and they didn't have the sufficient time um, not, be, not being together to claim that as a, as a legal option. So they were split without a formal divorce in place for a few years. And yeah, it was it was um, kind of decent one, but but few challenges came along. Dad was a highly reactive person, so I got some of that <clears throat> for sure. Um, you mean his behavior towards you? Yes, or? in general, in general, he was <clears throat> he was he was rageous, uh, sometimes a little violent. 
Um, but it was, it was just, you know, fear promoted reactions, I would say. Um, so I, I, was, I was really terrified of him when I was little, whenever he was getting mad. Yeah, it was, it was a bit, uh, bit uh, challenging. Um, Were you glad when he left? I'm not that sure because I was still missing him. <clears throat> but it was, it was a relief for sure. Uh, the mom took over putting guidelines and rules at home in a, in a probably healthier way. But it was, it was a, a dysfunctional, all-around, transgenerational context anyway. Lots of alcoholism in the family. Yes, a lot of alcoholism, uh, abandonment, uh, um, murder figures due to violence, uh, you know, a bunch of unfair um, events that took place. Um, so just just uh, probably a family or a group of people trying to be the best they could with what they got. So there you are. You're living in Venezuela. You're five years old. Your dad splits. Your mom's now got the opportunity of raising you yes. by herself. Yes. What did the next few years look like well, in your life? Uh, that was, that was the, the home, uh, our second home there, the one I, I recall the most. Then we moved to, to a complex, which uh, was uh, pretty much a six-building complex. Uh, several apartments and a bunch of kids, uh, a lot of space and great to play and, basket, and a basketball multi-purpose um, court to play basketball and mini soccer. Not a lot of, um, we're, we're just kids trying to be kids back then. You're talking about the children in the complex. Children, children in the complex, yeah, and, and in the school. So I was, I was getting affected probably because I was a very shy, introverted kid with a Im clear image of, uh, of uh, an authoritarian father not being that extrovert at all, probably opening a gate to kids just to take little advantage or be, be naughty. Nothing, nothing serious, nothing, nothing really bad. But of course, that, that affected me because he, he, he came up as a bully. And so were you bullied as a, as a kid? Yeah, yes, I was in the school and where I was living. So <clears throat> there was, there was an, uh, a turning point uh, probably after I was 10, 12, in which I tried to revert it or, or take revenge from that. Because sometimes they were being kind of, mom was kind of pretty lady still, so they, they were trying to be sometimes disrespectful. So I took that mm -hmm. little role of the man of the house, which my dad left me when I was five, by the way. Uh, he literally told me, I'm leaving you, you be the man mm -hmm. in the house. So you look after you too, you look after your mom. So whenever <laughs> So, so man of the house and you're probably two and a half feet tall. Exactly. <laughs> that little man. So yeah, and, and, and then as, as soon as I had the chance, uh, as I started growing up and probably training and doing some some martial arts, I of course took my chance to to look after that. And and that unleashed that little gene or pattern ingrained some subconsciously by my father hmm. whenever he was fearing fearful. So it was yeah. it was a copy mechanism that I just adopted from from him and people around. So the anger grew not only out of the way you saw your dad respond to situations before he left, but because of his circumstances of being bullied, 
your mom being disrespected, you being told that you were the man of the house, you had a responsibility to protect her and also to protect yourself. You did martial arts, what, karate and that sort of thing. Uh, You worked out, uh, you're, you know, you definitely, uh, you have the physique of a man who's worked out his whole life. So how did that all play out? 10 or 12 when I started, and a lot of uh, kind of mild abuses and, and unfair episodes that I started to look after, probably take, um, get a grip on them. Mm-hmm. He went in, a, in an unexpected way to, to a sort of uncontrolled rage or, mm. or overreacting behavior. Um, when I was a teenager, people around, whoever, whoever I was having the opportunity to outbring that uh, reactiveness, I was just just going after and, and to probably randomly train that resentment and probably that powerlessness as a kid whenever yeah. I, I got that little chance to do so. But it helped somehow, then things got more stable. I was kind of um, included or somehow gaining some respect around my peers, my um, classmates at school, and the guys that grew up with me where I lived back then. Things started getting better, but I was still kind of really, really low self-esteem kind of guy. Angry all the Angry time. Angry quite often or highly reactive, um, happy, sports-oriented kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not really confident when when it came up to girls, especially mm-hmm. in that environment. It was really tough for for all of us. It was just then, then it became it became a you know a kids kind of rule. So we were just bullying each other. But it was it was more fun. Right? It became something. It was part of the deal. You don't get angry because this is part of the game. So we're just like building resistance and resilience against it. But. That, that took me out of the female interaction f- until I was 19 or, or 20. When you were an adolescent, let's say an early teen to middle teenager, how were you doing in school? Uh, I, I was resistant in school. I was, I was not, not really focused into it. I didn't want to come in. I didn't want to engage. And I, I, I wanted to, <clears throat> to project a little rebellion in that regard. That was until junior high. Mm-hmm. Then I started like to get a little better, thinking of um, my university chance in Venezuela. Education back then was free, but to mm-hmm. get in in these public universities, which were very well renowned, it was really hard. So, with my high school grades, I was far from having a decent chance to get in. So I started working my way after second year high school, and it kind of got better towards the end, and I somehow made it. Sounds like you turned the corner from being a rebel. You went into middle school. Somehow you had some ambition, knowing that university was not too far off. When did alcohol enter the picture for you? Well, my first experience, I was kind of denying it until not so long ago, and it was when I was 16 or 15. I mm-hmm. thought it was when I was 19 or 20, but in in, in fact was was there in a it was it was a final of a World Cup in '94, um, so we were celebrating. We all had drinks, 
and I, I went, I went literally over. We went out to celebrate with some friends, and it was a rainy day. And of course, the guy who was driving, I was in the back seat. He was, he was drunk. I was also drunk, but I, <clears throat> I can barely just remember because I was really affected by the alcohol. Even it was probably a small amount. Mm-hmm. I did, I do not recall much of it. So we got into an accident. Mm. We were just lucky because I recall I was not wearing seat belts and then we just we just crashed or hit the brakes on a slippery asphalt while raining and hit the bus from behind and I flew all the way f- the back seat from co-pilot side all the way to the pilot or driver's side hit my head um, on my left uh, eyebrow and I just I just uh, stay up unconscious for a few hours and they brought me to my mom and I was covered in blood. They took me to the hospital. And, and that episode reminded me why my family members, and including my mom sometimes, was kind of pointing my problem, my potential problem with alcohol that I was, of course, denying because all those episodes in childhood and, and being an adolescent or, or, or as a teenager kind of justified in my obsessive mind that kind of uh, trend and that, that I was somehow deserving it. So. I, I get that. I think for a lot of people, especially when you've, when you've gone through what you went through or gone through what I've went through, you feel almost an entitlement to mm. be able to, okay, I've, I've dealt with all this BS for years now. Now that I've found alcohol and or drugs, I am deserving to have the release or whatever it is that I think the drugs and alcohol are giving me, but it's really a false sense of confidence there, isn't it? Correct. Yes, it's it's a false sense of empowerment, I would say. So you felt empowered when you drank? I was, and and then all all those fears will tend to fade away. So that was the next stage, and it was when I started to try to dare to interact with some girls I liked, but I was so insecure to do it on my own, so I needed alcohol to get me to that level. The first attempt, I just I just blacked out before them, and I just lost it. And then I tried. I, I felt ashamed because they they got me drunk. They were girls, very pretty, by the way, and I was not able to keep up with them. So I have to train myself for that, and I did very well. <laughs> So you went into alcoholic training. <laughs> alcoholic training, and then also looking looking to get into into the old patch. I cannot be this shameful kind of guy. I need to manage drinking in a decent way, and I and I did very well. And it happened in no time, I can tell. <laughs> so you you found a way to train yourself to be a little bit more efficient and responsible with the alcohol, so you're not blacking out the first time you exactly, meet somebody. Exactly. So this is when, you said around 15, 16 years old, this is happening? 15, 16, and then that copy mechanism to be a decent social corporate yeah. alcoholic started around the age of 19 or 20. Also, it came up after a disappointment with my teenage sweetheart that was a neighbor that she, of course, got probably bored because I was so insecure to just yeah. let her know what I was feeling or what I wanted to do. And then she, she gave me the chance, but I, I was not doing much, stalking my fear and my, my self-doubt. So I, I felt that as a betrayal. And I went after chasing as many girls as I could. 
As a reaction to that one relation. As a reaction and kind of revenge, exactly. Mm. And on top of that, I put a lot of alcohol to do that, to, to do it in the best possible way. Now, the people you were hanging with, did you have a, a group of people that you hung out with or a gang or, or were you mostly on your own? The, the majority of the kids, uh, I was always in school. I was the youngest. Uh, my mom tried to keep me uh, probably kind of underaged on all my grades. I was in first grade elementary school. I was five years old. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be seven. Yeah. Um, so along all the way, I was always the, the youngest. So I was while I was living in that residence. And all my neighbors, they were kind of older. They were experiencing different things. I was still sure. not feeling ready, not feeling uh, sufficient to do that. So I got together with the guys that were like kind of the underdogs, the non-accepted ones, the little rebels. And uh, two of them, they were they were pretty heavy drinkers. Mm. And um, probably my closest one, he was smoking, one of them, he was smoking cigarettes, and then he got into, into dope pretty early. I was trying to cover him up because that was a taboo back in my hometown in Venezuela. Everybody was smoking, but nobody was telling was smoking. So I tried to cover him up, and that's how I came to know about marijuana. And and then he started doing all the things. But I was I was heavily drinking with him. Were you doing the marijuana as well? No, I was not brave enough to do so. Oh. I think somehow I just got scared to do that. But as I grew up around it, I was very very close marijuana and other sort of uh, drugs. But probably that little sense of responsibility of looking after home, my mom, and that, that wish to help or be a yeah. better version <clears throat> to support my, my household uh, as a kid, it did not allow me or gave me the permission to do that. I was just yeah. afraid to do it, and I don't know, probably was kind of God's plan. So these guys, the, the, the two guys that you talked about hanging out with, both were heavier drinkers Heavy than drinkers, you, yes. and the one guy was, was much more into smoking marijuana, yes, yes. and you didn't want to do that. Uh, for how many years did you hang with these guys before, before you uh, kind of moved on? Five to seven years, not included before, during, and a little after university. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you went to university for how many years? Five. Five, five years. Five years of university. And then then I found some other friends there that were heavy and solid drinkers there too. And that was another another chapter. But somehow it got all mixed together. The friends huh. from childhood, the friends from, from high school, the friends from university. And another thing is that I was hanging out with the baddest guys in high school. And I mean, bad guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were somehow protecting me, and those were my, my friends in high school, too. Uh, kind of like a gang? Yeah, kind of. There were, there were yeah. especially three of them that they were like serious in, in my hometown. And coming from a school that they, I was being bullied by kind of spoiled kids, those guys, they were, they were serious. And somehow they just uh, took me under their wings and, and protected me while being tough in a in a really harsh environment. They taught you how to be tough and harsh? <laughs> Sometimes they were giving me the chance when it was easy, when it was hard, they were, they were stepping in and just keeping me behind. That's kind of a mixed blessing, isn't it? It was, it was. I think it was, it was, it was God's plan and somehow we were shedding a lot. Some of them went, went 
in a bad way. Today, it came to my mind that, that one of them, he was he went into, into bad businesses all over, nationally and internationally, too. Mm -hmm. And he was a guy I was sharing sometimes uh, breaks in, in, in high school. Uh, so it was, it was somehow a blessing, but of course, he was not part of my life for so long. And I just then continued university, and I found a decent group of guys that guided me in a way better uh, fashion just to achieve my, my goal, which was finish my, my career, which was mechanical engineering, as suggested by my dad in between mm -hmm. those visits as, as I grew up. And I was afraid and terrified of that before. But then as I, as I went through it, noticed that I was able to make it. And then it, it became my career and it gave me a, probably one of the biggest, biggest blessings of my life. So you studied to become a mechanical engineer. Yes. So you got your degree in mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering back in 2002. Yeah. So what did you feel with regard to the drinking about the time that you were getting your degree? Did you, did you see a sense of freedom coming or had you laid off drinking during your school? Well, not that much. I had, actually, it was, it was an interesting mix because my first job came up from a, a reference from a university teacher I had, a professor. Mm -hmm. So that was the link to very first contact the company that hired me the first time. But then that was like a startup or stepping stone. Then to get the job I was more or less pursuing with another, he was trying to follow another friend. He came up and he was closed and wrapped up in a bar. Mm. That was a very famous oil business workers bar in Western Venezuela. So it was covered in full with expats back then. And I recall the manager of the company I wanted to join was a guy from Louisiana. Oh. And he was a full-blown drinker. And the way I made that click he needed because they were choosing between four guys. Two, the two of us, we were friends and we were like kind of uh, young and, and had the, the willingness and eagerness to, to get better. And another two that we were doubling or tripling our experience and, and, and uh, technical background. But we made a click with this manager, drinking at a bar, and I, I, I went the extra mile asking a girl for the dancing and I dance and, you know, behave as a player in front of him. He was a player. And that was it. That was that was the day before of the interview. And then in the interview, he just he just uh, knocked or high fived me on the on the way in. And of course, that gave us a little advantage over others. And we got that job. And of course, the drinking routine became a habit. And we were all pretty much blacking out or passing out every Thursday at the same bar. So your manager becomes your drinking pal, part yes, of the same exactly. group. Exactly, manager and superintendent, both. Starting on Thursday through the weekend, pretty much. Well, they they were only on on, on a Thursday, probably Friday, but but we working on a rotational basis, seven by seven, seven days on, seven days off. That was over over beginning to go all the way wow. till Sunday, or probably then. That was the first stage, Thursday to Sunday, nonstop. And then as I start getting longer rotations, 14, 14, 21, 21, and so on and so forth, it was probably a month on at work or on duty and a month off drinking literally every single day. Well, it's, it's curious what you were saying about, um, you know, you, you got hired by a, a man who may have already been an alcoholic, 
but to get the job, you kind of emulated him. And then once hired, you continued on with your drinking and the behavior. How many people were on the team with you under this supervisor? Probably 10. And were you all in the same boat? All of them. They were full-blown alcoholics from mentors, from peers, colleagues, supervisors, superintendent, manager, managers all over. Uh, mostly expats from, yeah, from different places and Venezuelans. So that mix between the, the weather or the, 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 the kind of tropical twist, it was just a time bomb because you can endlessly go in a perfect place in which people can uh, make way more than with what they earn, uh, surrounded by beautiful, gorgeous girls and pre-anarchic environment. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. You, know, it's, you can drive, uh, drink and drive. You can just go till the next day. You can jump on a plane. You can go from one bar to the next or wow. jump to, to from one girl to the next pretty easily. Sounds like a bachelor alcoholic's dream job. Mm, somehow. Luckily, I was not getting paid that much, so I couldn't go that far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, are we still talking about in Venezuela? Is all this still happening yes. there? For how long did that continue? That continued for about five and a half years okay. before I made my first international move to Mexico. But in between or before that, I had a couple of chances to go to Argentina for training purposes. And then they gave me the chance, not being ready to do that, but somehow they gave me the chance. It was a part of an international assignment, mm -hmm. but I was still a tr fresh trainee, but somehow they helped me and uh, I made it and they, they were decently happy with my little support. It was not much, but at least um, a decent one. Were those people the same kind of people that, that you were involved with, that they were drinking? and, and or Did you have to clean up or stop drinking for a period of time to get into those opportunities? No, they were, they were all alcoholics. They were all alcoholics. And, and Argentina was not as bad, but in Venezuela, all over the place, they were, they were full-blown alcoholics. Hmm. And it was part of the game, being in, in, in what I was doing upstream, drilling oil business he was pretty much the rule you you had to do it and it was it was a way to fit in at least for me and for many of them so i was trying to please people i was trying to show them something better than my actual version somehow still doubtful about my my competencies and my self-worth but definitely, it was something pretty normal to them. I was just lucky that did not affect me. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, place. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Did you ever get to the point where 
you looked at what you were having to do to progress in your career, and you looked at how, what you were doing to do it. I mean, drinking and, and being around people who were always drinking and drunk. Did you ever get the sense that maybe that wasn't the right way to go about life? Or did that just become so normal that you didn't think about it? Not at all. Never, never, ever thought about it. I was, I was still, now that you mentioned it and put it that way, and thanks for that, it was just a, a little portion of rebellion still. Still, you know, you I didn't want. I didn't want. Still a rebel. I didn't want. I didn't want to to study no more. I didn't want to do anything better. Probably a few trainings or whatever. But what I was doing was good enough. Somehow, while gaining experience, to to be a better version of myself. But not doing uh, functional trainings or functional improvements in my career. It was just going my alcoholic way. Not even thinking to seeing it as a potential portion that might affect my career negatively. Hmm. It might just get me into something really bad. Another thing was in, in, in Venezuela, drinking and driving was not a big deal. So, of course, DUIs were not even in the picture. Really? Otherwise, I probably have several of them, but I, it was just not an option there. Yeah. So you were just drinking and driving all over the place. Small, small uh, streets, small, not too big town, not many highways, but still pretty, pretty dangerous and, and, and taking a lot of chances. It was, it was just, I think, God uh, doing for, for me what I could not do for myself. Sounds like some higher power was looking out. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. Like somehow, I was, sometimes I was parking my car backwards as they taught me to do so on that defensive training. Yeah. But uh, sometimes I, I was totally unsure or I had a blackout, and I, I was not sure if my car was there or not. So, How often were you blacking out? Were you blacking out every time you got drunk or, or occasionally? Not, not that often. Uh, it was very, very occasional. It was because I was feeling tired. So sometimes I was just falling asleep, and I was not remembering few episodes in very, very few occasions. It was not that often. Uh -huh. But uh, some other people say, I don't remember nothing. No, I do remember. But of course, the, the the mind was just fading away um, as the disease was progressing. Was there drinking on the job that was going no, on? Not at all. Not at all. It was since it was a, a high risk facility and a high risk job. We were we were pretty much not allowed to bring or have any alcohol, despite it was a line operation. Uh, so that was really serious because it was a high, it is a high risk, highly critical task. So that was that was not an option. And part of my duties was to check on people if they were under the influence wow. of alcohol and drugs. So somehow that was that was a, an interlude for my alcoholism, but my mind was still thinking of that. So during the job, I was kind of responsible and probably afraid mm -hmm. to lose it. Yeah. So therefore, somehow respecting it, yeah, and and probably was was that little break that God was giving me, since He knew I would be drinking the rest of the time. Yeah, I get that. So it sounds to me like you became what we all often call a functional alcoholic, where you could literally, when it came time to do certain things, you could stop drinking for a period of time, get the work done, and then at the end of that, do whatever it was. The quantity that you were drinking while you weren't working on a, in, a, in a, a critical job situation, 
did you have any effects while on the job from not drinking? I mean, did you ever, did, did the disease ever play itself out and maybe having the shakes or having a certain degree of withdrawal or were you still too young? I think I, think I was still too young. My, my liver was, was kind of fresh. Yeah. And on top of that, somehow physical activity helped me a little bit to just get, get worn out as, as quick as I could. Uh, but I did not uh, felt something like that, but, but probably a lot of anxiety and, and uh, just sudden rage yeah. uh, that, was, that was picking up or coming, coming out of nowhere. That probably, probably the, the, the mind part was, was playing a role in there, but nothing physical as far as I recall. Where did the rage play itself out? Whenever, whenever I was uh, confronted, yeah. or probably under a critical situation in which fear or uh, self-doubt might got in, might slip in, I was overreacting and trying to defend my point or to state my perspective about any kind of situation in a probably or exaggerated way. Sounds like a real effective way to keep people away and feel like you're continuing to manage your life. Exactly, exactly. And on top of that, being the person in charge, oh, yeah. of course, that was giving me some fuel to just keep my denial as strong as possible. That I'm supposed to do this, you're wrong, I am the right. Yeah, so God. it sounds like an egomaniac's uh, field day. Exactly. Yeah, I get that. So you're, you're going through, you're in this job, you're continuing to drink when you're off. When did you first notice that alcohol was starting to become a problem for you? Well, after, after some international assignments and having the chance to go and try other things in other different places, mm-hmm. having, having a, more opportunities and options that I thought it was part of my path as a, as a functional alcoholic, as you, as you just reminded me to, as a definition, I start feeling like regardless of the place, this was going to Vegas, going to Miami, going to New York, going to all over, or a lot of places in Europe, South America, trying to find the best places, best people, most beautiful girls, most expensive and fanciest bottles and services in, in, in nightclubs. Noticing that people were somehow taking advantage of me, hmm. and I was ending up in the same sad and shameful spot over and over again, hmm. doing the same things, expecting different results, but getting the same. Of hmm. course, a definition, and still unknown definition of insanity, but definitely he was he was not taking me nowhere. Despite I was trying, literally anything everywhere yeah. to make my life better or get a grip on it. Can you give me an example or two of, of what that looked like while it was happening? You mentioned uh, trying different places, different behavior, more money, whatever else going on. Can you give me some examples of, of what that looked like as it was happening for you? Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> well, well I was still living in Venezuela. It was pretty fun, and I was planning in the middle of my hitch, let's say, my, my time on duty, either it was 14, 21, or 28 days, in which I was supposed to be focused in my job, I was planning my spree in advance. Uh-huh. Probably a couple of trips with two to three, four girls, 
going to three, four places, um, and of course, drinking pretty much every single day, literally speaking. At that time, he was not drinking by units. It was it was large amounts. It was it was not a drink. It was by the bottle, by the case, mm. by the largest amount available. So I was I was planning in advance. Whenever I was I was returning that very first day, I was just hitting the road, making my way either to a nightclub, to another city, uh, jumping on a plane with with few girls and going to the beach, uh, driving whatever, just to kind of catch up with that portion of life that I wasted or lost while I was working. So that happened initially in Venezuela, which was pretty pretty fun until it was safe or reasonable to do so. And then it started happening in other places, mm. Southeast Asia, North, South America, Europe, etc. And, and then the, a later stage was between quite fun cities around the U.S., especially Miami. I was I was making my rotations from and to Miami in order to just land and go. And I made friends with some nightclubs owners, managers, nightlife promoters. So I was I was kind of a decent guy and well known to go all over Miami with or without company. So initially I was going out with my friends from promotions and mm-hmm. nightclubs business from Thursdays to Sundays. Mm-hmm. And then I I met some some waitresses and uh, bartenders, which is pretty much the core of the industry there, entertainment, Mm -hmm. uh, food and beverage business and industry. And I was hanging out with them from Monday to Wednesday while my friends that were working in the industry were hiding from me because I was going all day, every day. Ah, so they didn't want to become like you or be sucked <laughs> into your world at that point. It's not that you're off, that you're going to drag us to that mess yeah. uh, on a daily basis. It sounds like almost like, the, as I said earlier, kind of like a bachelor's delight to be able to, you know, have go all around the world, go to nightclubs and hang out with fancy people and, and obviously drop a lot of money along the way and, and so forth. When did that start to crash down around you? It sounds sounds like you were able to keep that going for a while. I, I was, yeah, I, I kept that going for for uh, oh, a couple of girlfriends in between, some breakups, but still, you know, it was not it was not a big deal. I was still just doing, making my own way. But that happened in a in a highly intense and frequent basis, um, six to seven years, probably initially five before I relapsed mm. it. Uh, but you know, between 35 and my 40 years old, 40 years birthday, yeah, I just start feeling that I was I was going nowhere. I was feeling deep inside of me. I was feeling the same exact way, sad, betrayed, used. Um, that I was blowing a lot of money away unnecessarily, and and somehow I started to to, to ask. Because I came to know about 12-step programs from a friend that shared the message with me after a breakup Mm. with a girlfriend that, funnily speaking, she started drinking when she was 12. So it was a highly dysfunctional relationship. And and, uh, after that, I tried some other 12-steps fellowships, but that was not my core. I was still looking 
people around me rather than looking inside of me. At what point did you make the connection between the problems that you were having and the need to get help for those problems? Yeah, well, it was, it was an inflection point between being that victim and being the accountable guy. I was causing my own disaster, and I was, I was feeling that way because I was doing or coping with the same behaviors over and over again. So definitely something else was happening, and that only else was myself. So I went, I finally felt like I wanted to die, like in many other occasions, and talk about this with this friend, and we went to other 12-step programs with, but I never wanted to go to my own 12-step program, which was AA, and finally made it. And I was back in Bogota, by the grace of God, and it was a Monday morning, 6 a.m. group, and that was my first um, twist and, and impression of AA, which was amazing. But unfortunately, I stopped going to meetings because I was not there. And he gave me the impression to, okay, just try to find these kind of meetings, some Spanish meetings in Houston, Houston, et cetera, et cetera. But then I could not hold it anymore, and I relapsed and somehow looked for help, went to a meeting. And I knew that if in 25 years of total full-blown single man's pre going all over the place, trying so many things, mm-hmm. wouldn't work. I think, you know, my, my kind of logic and God, um, you know, showed to me that nothing will. So my only option, it was trying to look inside of me, and that was AA. That's interesting. You stayed sober for how long that first time around? Less than a year. Less than a year. But that relapse gave me a lot of strength, and, and it, it simplified my denial because I was just still trying to justify going here and there. And then the cool part is that God did the, the job for me to just break out whatever reasons I might come up with on the road way before I realized I was having a problem. And I was pretty close or ready to die anytime soon due to my obsessive mind and, and regular drinking patterns. Did you notice that you weren't getting it the first time around in AA? when you were staying sober. Can you see the point at which you started heading towards that relapse instead of towards stronger sobriety? No, I did not because I kind of felt a little overconfident that I got it. Like I'm in AA, so I got yeah, it. Yeah, I got it, I, but I just went to a few meetings. I was not leaving AA. So I, I, I humbly believe that I needed that relapse because when it happened, it was, it was really silly. He was a friend or a colleague that he was looking after me. He knew I was not drinking. I was just pretty much dry. And he was, no, but why are you not drinking? I cannot trust you if you don't drink, da, da, da. <laughs> and then one day having dinner, oh, come on, it's just two glasses of wine. And I was foolish enough just to say yes to that glass of wine. That's how I shamefully relaxed. But that was a wake-up call for sure. And uh, that reinforced my powerlessness and how close I was to just lost everything I got in my life, literally speaking. You know, oftentimes when people relapse, what helps bring them back a little bit more quickly was they did pick up something during their time with AA that even after the relapse comes back to help them get back into the program. What had you learned the first time in AA that made it possible for you to survive the relapse and get back to AA? Well, I think the, the quality of examples I was surrounded with 
mm. back in Colombia. You know, communities in South America are quite strong, but they're not as formal and available as they might be in other places. But the um, base, foundation of these groups are really committed and program living kind of guys. So that gave me an amazing impression. I knew I was one of them. I was just not around them long enough because I, I needed to go to work and I still had that little portion, like I said, of higher power that was my job. That of course I need to go this time and that time and jumping in a chopper, going across the globe, da da da. That put me aside of a, of a full surrendering uh, behavior or the attitude until I got here and finally. So how long did the relapse last? Seven months because it was September 2017 until April 2018. And then finally ended up going to the first meeting that popped up in my mobile on Thursday night, feeling like I wanted to die like I did the first time I went to an AA meeting. And mm-hmm. by the grace of God, I just um, desperately shared without even being called. I just raised my hand and uh, I shared with them that I wanted to die and I felt horrible et cetera, et cetera. And right after that meeting, my sponsor just, just approached me and my actual sponsor, and how are you? He noticed my accent, so he, he knows some Spanish. He's, he's a, an English-speaking native, but he knows pretty, pretty decent Spanish. He noticed my accent. He approached me. He asked me about my sponsor, and I told him, no, he's here, there. I'm your sponsor. And that was <laughs> it. Friend, so yeah. he, was, he was pretty old-fashioned and to the point, and then... A uh, good group of solid sobriety guys around me on that meeting, and then just started my way going a uh, pretty much a meeting a day or more um, here in Houston, and that has been my biggest blessing, and now my way of living. Just now. That's amazing that that you were that you've been able to put together five years after a relapse. That most people don't survive their relapses. I mean, we do get a chance to see people who come back, but people say I've never seen somebody come back to AA and say how great it was out there, but then why would they come back to AA? If it was great, why would they want to come back to AA? So the people that whose story, relapse stories we get to hear, you and I get to hear in these meetings, um, some of those people don't make it back. And it sounds, sounds to me like you might have been one of those people had not you been found by this group of people and a sponsor who was very forthright, and I know your sponsor is, and and the fact that he said who you got as a sponsor, and he didn't believe what you said because you it was clear that you probably didn't really have a sponsor. Somehow <laughs> he was far away, and and you know he tried it, but he he was he was not really playing a role, and I kind of felt that because whenever I was writing something in terms of steps, I was kind of showing it to him, but he was probably busy somewhere else. And I definitely needed a higher level. It was not, it was not an all my own kind of deal. So I, I needed solid and like a good friend of us in this program told me a couple of days ago, I need hardcore sponsorship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And hardcore sponsorship is necessary for hardcore alcoholics. Exactly. And, and I, I get that. So what was it like for you working the steps? How long did it take you to feel like you had sufficiently worked through the first 12 steps? My sponsor helped me a lot and he was, he was very patient and open-minded because I was still on the go 
My life's been like that in the last 20 years. I've been a rotator, so half of my life away, half of my life in town. So being a rotator, it took us almost two years to get it done because I was I was working 28, 28 or 35, 35, going overseas. But the one great thing was that he was still not retired back then, mm-hmm. and he was setting aside part of his weekend, uh, spending some of, of his time off just to sit with me, walk me through the reading, walk me through the steps. It was probably not as efficient, but it was really genuine and probably what I needed because I, I, my denial was ready to jump in. So after two years and, and kind of honesty and, and pretty solid guidance, especially in step four, that was overall what it took. And, and then uh, step 12, I've been willing, probably not ready, but willing for a while. And then my first Ponzi came out a few months ago. And I was, I was happy to, to hear from him after ju- we just got started. That he, he relapsed and he told me. And we just had a pretty, pretty powerful meeting yesterday uh, covering something and, and sharing. He, he invited me to a meeting and I was, I was feeling grateful. You know, like he was not looking that engaged. One of, one of you guys told me, okay, talk to him and see which are the reasons. I was a man, so I cannot, you know, have no morale to, to point the finger at nobody. That's one good thing, that my spam of tolerance will be quite wide because I clearly remember who I was, so I, I might have good, good examples and experiences to share um, now to this one, to this guy, and probably in future to a few others. So that was really powerful. He's, he's on his way to, to work now. But we had a great chat, and we shared a meeting yesterday, and mm-hmm. I think he, he might cover step one, so we'll just have a chat about it in, in the next couple of days. But it was a, it was a deep and very spiritual feeling of, of his little progress and commitment. He already went by his 90, 90 and 90 mark. He's 107 yeah. days sober or so, and so I think he, he got it this time. A lot of, a lot of rubbish in his plate, but... Uh, trusting God. You know what you've just been describing? That's beautiful what you just said. What you've just been describing are the gifts of Alcoholics Anonymous. The fact that you got a sponsor who was interested enough in staying sober himself to know that he had to help another alcoholic to do that. And so then he becomes the gift to you, making time in the midst of his day to give to you and then teaching you through that process how to be a sponsor to the next man. And then, so you've described the gifts on really both ends of that, of that uh, encounter. And uh, it's really beautiful for me to see you working that. Whenever I see you, I know that you, I, I, you can always tell the quality of a man's sobriety by looking at the guys he sponsors. Because usually those guys are walking around pretty confident, feeling pretty secure because they know they got a sponsor. They got their back is covered in a big way. Do you, do you get the feeling that way? It touches my heart because he was that kind of guy. I was and I still feel proud of him. He introduced me to of my great sponsors. They are, they are remarkable in this program, my humble opinion. They have been a, a great example to me. Um, and they're, they're pretty, pretty solid and, and kind of respected in this community. So that to me is a big blessing. And, and, you know, one funny part is that my sponsor, when he met my sponsor, he was like, hmm, 
because he might mostly try to be playful, and he didn't like it. So he, told me, he might be he might be a tough one. Well, so I was. <laughs> <laughs> So are you. You're the same guy. He didn't say nothing, but it was a good way and a wise way just to. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Sounds like you've been doing what you need to do. What kind of challenges have you faced in the last five years that strained your sobriety or that got you thinking off the grid or considering that um, maybe this is not all it's cracked up to be. Have, have you encountered challenges like that? What did they look like? Well, it's, it's a funny question because I did share about it on Tuesday and I'm um, just trying to summarize. But I would say the, the most critical but miraculous stages happen kind of in three parts, but mm-hmm. they are a different but as powerful value to each other from you know each of them. So the first one I would say was the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It caught me out on, on the way. I was away from yeah. home, so it was almost a year without seeing my relatives or friends. Uh, of course, staying away from, from my AA community, going from one work to another. Uh, right when the pan- pandemic hit, I was, I was abroad. I was in the Middle East. So the company I was living did not look after me for accommodation and food. So I was paying for my own food and accommodation for four months and a half in Dubai, <laughs> sending money out of South America to help my mom, which was there. She doesn't supposed to, but she was there for a short visit and ended up being 18 months there. And then staying, mm. paying for all my bills and expenses uh, here in Houston. And that was kind of challenging because my income stopped at the beginning of that year and it went for more than six months. So my contingency fund was kind of there, but it was not sufficient to cover that in that proportion in a decent way, but somehow made it through. So that was a big learning. Then mm-hmm. with that, I was going into um, another assignment and my first work after the pandemic was requiring me to be self-isolated for 14 days in a hotel room mm. with army vigilance or surveillance. 24-7, so I was not able to leave my room for 14 days. And it was quite challenging for some other people that even quitted, like my uh, supervisor mentioned it back then, but he, they just took away their lives. I was staying in a, in a hotel room under heavy surveillance for 14 days just to, in order to get offshore for a double hitch, which was not 28, okay. it was 56 days. So I was 14 days of self-isolation before going offshore for 56 days altogether. Wow, so all that was brought up by this, the pandemic. Yes, so that that was uh, that, that took place for more than a year, and it was quite challenging. If it wasn't, it wouldn't, it wasn't for the program, I, I wouldn't be here because it was, it was a lot of uh, anxiety and uncertainty uh, shuffling around that um, I was somehow getting obsessed with, but that taught me how to trust God for nothing obvious to me. And I was just feeling grateful, waiting on God, trusting God somehow, not really clear about it, but walking through some uh, streets that nowadays are a very interesting uh, streets that I will tell you right after this second part, which was more than a year and a half without an income, for the first time in my life, waiting from one assignment to the next. That, before I was just going from one to another assignment, nonstop, despite I was, I was highly dysfunctional and, a, and an active alcoholic, but 
I did overreacting. I was doing the right thing, but I probably, I was not feeling like working in that place after my, my supervisor retired. They offered me his position, which was an honor for me, but mm. I didn't want to live on a residential basis uh, in the Middle East, not at least full time at that age. So things changed and they tried to push me to do wrong things for the sake of economics. And I, I refused to do that. So they started putting a lot of pressure. I said, okay, that's good for you, not for me. So we better just get to a mutual agreement. So we, we kind of both agreed to leave it that way. And I just leave that assignment. And it took me more than a year and a half to get my second, my next one. But in between, got laid or deployed a, a solid foundation between steps three and 11, because I was thanking and trusting him and hearing over and over again from you guys that God will come up with something that I will never imagine and better than expected that became the rule of my, of my inner thoughts on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. They get healthier and I was able to help my old folks from Colombia to lead meetings. They, the meetings are so small that sometimes they cannot cover from Monday to Friday. And I was taking Thursdays for more than seven months and I stay there. So it was it was a beautiful opportunity. And then the very place I was walking without a clear clue of what my future will be like right after the pandemic is the very place that I'm working right now with one of the biggest blessings and probably dream assignment in my whole career of 20 years. Hmm. That's amazing. That's such a success story that only a good AA program could write. And I, I love to hear that. It sounds to me like you had the willingness and the patience and the reliance upon a power greater than yourself in such a way that these things materialized for you, that God was doing exactly. for you what you could not do for yourself. That's a, that's a major promise. Sounds like it's been fulfilled in your life. Thank, thankfully, uh, I can definitely agree on that. And it is like my, my great sponsor say once, <clears throat> I do blindly trust this program. And that's something that resonated in my mind. And I still reserve a pretty, pretty decent grip on it. And on top of that, it, you know, somehow being as stubborn and probably as denial ready as I could be, God just taught me to trust him for nothing but at the same time that nothing that I think it is it is everything for him but it's not my time to know yeah that's beautiful your whole story today has really made me feel very encouraged about the type of things that can happen to a man and he can still stay sober through them the fact that you physically could not even go to AA meetings and staying sober, I think that's a great message for people who think, if I am not at a place that I can go to a meeting that I might drink, you've proven otherwise. You were out of work for a long period of time, but you had the faith that something was gonna happen, and it did. These are all messages to the next person who hears this, and I don't know who's going to hear this particular podcast, but the thing that I know now about you, because you and I haven't had the opportunity to really share like this before, is that you are a great example of Alcoholics Anonymous and God at work in a man's life. You've acknowledged where the gifts came from, and the fact that you still recognize that it's God who's running the show is a beautiful thing to behold. And I want to I want to thank you for sharing that with me today. I want to tell you that I, I respect and honor 
your sobriety. I love you. You're a good member of our group, and sounds to me like you're staying pretty close to the program. And uh, again, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Howard. Thanks for the opportunity and for having me today. Okay, you bet. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Diego R., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all my interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear our complete catalog of AA Recovery Interviews. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.